and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 17. I'm Nick Dixon, joined of course by Toby Young, and it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Yes, this is our Christmas special edition. No time off for us. There's no truce in the culture war, so we soldier on. And we'll be discussing Twitter's suppression of the COVID counter-narrative, the woman arrested for praying in her head, and Rishi's attempt to relate to the homeless, plus our best and worst moments of the year, and of course, peak woke. But Toby, I thought I'd throw a softball at you to start with and say, how's your Christmas been? Yeah, my Christmas has been okay. Um, You know, most people take a break over Christmas. I just cease doing the work of 10 men and just do the work of five. Um, So, (laughs) Can uh, I just quickly say uh, on that point that um, you're in a sort of strange location through our podcast. And a minute just before we started, you said, oh, we we shouldn't have come here. I thought you were about to say we shouldn't have tried to do the podcast. But what you were saying was you should have sacrificed your family Christmas to just sit in a studio (laughs) doing podcasts. Well, because I'm in Wales at the moment. So I came, so the whole family. Um, have decamped to Wales for three days. And this was prompted by QPR playing Cardiff away on Boxing Day. So we drove to Wales to go to that match. And then we've rented an Airbnb in Wales for three nights. And it was quite expensive because uh, with my mother-in-law and my four kids, and one of them brought a friend. So there are eight of us. Um, And we had to rent quite a big Airbnb and it's it quite expensive, but we thought, well, it'll be worth it. But it, it it's, um, it, it couldn't be worse. Um, <laughs> so when we arrived, I mean, first of all, it's in this kind of pretty grim area, you know, there are kind of yobs riding past on bicycles without lights, kind of scanning cars and windows to see if there's anything to steal. Um, but, but in addition, when we arrived, um, uh, there was no heating. Uh, the place was really cold and it, 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 we called up the guy we'd rented it from and he popped around immediately, must live around the corner. And he said, well, the upstairs boiler's broken. So I put heaters in the room. <laughs> but the downstairs boiler, he just, he, he had a card and he failed to kind of um, uh, like put money on it. So he went away and put money on the card and came back. So, so the heating's working downstairs. But it, it's like two flats knocked into one. And it, it's like he's done it himself, you know, and it's totally unqualified to do it. It's like it's like a flat conversion done by Mr. Bean. None of, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. None of the doors shut properly. Um, the lights are in the wrong place in every room. So if you open the door, it conceals the light switch. Um, the cutlery and the glassware... Um, couldn't be the tableware couldn't be cheaper i mean i thought i you know ikea was rock bottom but the most luxurious thing most luxurious things in this airbnb are the kind of bottom of the range most cheapest things you can get in ikea and and, and that's that's about 10 percent. the remaining 90 percent is stuff that he somehow found in some retail substrata below ikea um i mean it's just it's just um it's like carry on abroad, you know, when they, they show up at that hotel and nothing works. It's basically a building site. And this house is basically a building site. I mean, if you look under any bed, there are building materials, kind of um, dust sheets, cans of paint, paint brushes. And it's just it's just it's uh, I think we may cut it, cut it short. I, I'm debating with my wife whether we call him up and try and negotiate a lower fee um, or whether we just leave, leave an absolute stinker of a review. Um, and my wife thinks the honest thing to do would be to call him up and say, look, you know, you've got to give us a bit of uh, some, some money back because this is, was not as advertised. Um, and now you have to go into your friend's house to even do the podcast because they presumably don't even have decent Wi-Fi at this place. No. And I, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's <laughs> been pretty, and I've got to do a GB news hit later today. Wow. Um, anyway. 
Always working though. We respect that. We respect that about you, Toby. Um, my big uh, revelation from Christmas was finding out that my nine-year-old nephew and six-year-old niece, I think she's six, anyway, something like that, were vaccinated, have been vaccinated multiple times for COVID. And that stunned me. That, that was so shocking to me and disturbing. I just was like, why have you been vaccinated? I was asking my nephew and he was going, oh yeah, I don't know. My parents said I had to be, and he knew it was nonsense. And I just said, um, well, I haven't had any and I'm fine. And then my dad went, shh, <laughs> because my, my brother doesn't know any of that. And he wasn't in the room. He just came back in and I thought, oh no, I'm in trouble if he heard. And I thought, I know I'll leave now because it was already like 10 or something. I was like, I'll leave. I've been here a while before we, this vaccine comes up. Then he messaged me. I was like, oh no, he's going to be about the vaccine. But it, he was just messaging something like a funny thing from my nephew. So it was okay. I think we got away with it. But I was so shocked by that. that they, and this is where we remember, Toby, that we're in a sort of niche here. Of course, we know this. And our listeners thank us for, you know, being some sort of solace. But this is when you, you remember like, oh, wow, yeah. In the normal world, they're vaxxing up children who don't need it. And we know, because we focus on the vaccine harms for adults all the time. So I'd be horrified if an adult had taken it. But of course, most have. But children of, of, of that age, that's madness, isn't it? Yeah, but I think, I don't think it's, I mean, as you say, it's not particularly unusual. Um, I was just shocked. Cause I, don't, I don't know. I don't really speak to people about their children's vaccination status. But he just, my nephew just mentioned it by chance. I know my, my, my children, you know, complained to me that they were among the very few children at their school to be unvaxxed. And, you know, and, they, and, and at the height of kind of vaccine mania, they accused me of being a kind of crazy anti-vaxxer and said, what have you got against vaccines, dad? You know, uh, why haven't we been vaccinated? And I was like, well, you have been vaccinated. You just haven't been vaccinated against COVID-19 because, you know, um, uh, they're not they're not advisable for children. Um, and I don't know why the school is encouraging children to get vaccinated uh, or why your friends are all putting peer pressure on you to get vaccinated but believe me when they all start suffering from various complaints well not all but when some of them um start suffering from various side effects you'll be grateful um that i didn't force you to get vaccinated and they haven't quite come around to that position yet but no i think um i think yeah i think i think unvaccinated children particularly teens are in a fairly small minority. Yeah, teens, but like as young as as my niece is like six or so, and she's six. I think she's about to be seven. But that's that's madness. I mean, yeah, obviously I'm in this strange world. But when I hear that now, I, I hear it as if they've got some terrible illness. I just take it as a terrible blow, and it made me realize, well, there's nothing I can do. And it made me realize once again, you know, it's my brother's world. I have to go around there at Christmas, but it's definitely not my world. And uh, I, I always think I won't go. Last year, I was told not to go by my mum because we'd have a horrible argument about Trump. Then my dad said, no, you have to come, and he overruled it. So I'd go, but I never like it. I just want to watch films on my own. My Christmas was when I got home. I watched some of Dirty Harry 2, the ending. Then I watched, you know those plus one channels? I watched the ending of As Good As It Gets. Then I went back and watched on the non on the plus one, I watched the earlier bit of As Good As It Gets. Then I, I did the same thing with Whiplash. So I watched about five, five chunks of certain films. And I'm like, this is what I want to do at Christmas. When do I get to do that? And that's that's all I want to do at Christmas. But I guess I'm a big weirdo. But anything else about Christmas, Toby? No, I think um, I, I, I think that's enough about Christmas. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I think when I was a child, um, well, I think when I was a child, I used to really enjoy it. But then when I became a teenager and for years afterwards, I mean, well into my late 30s, I used to kind of slightly resent the fact that um, my presents weren't good enough. 
you know, for some reason it would bring out the worst in me. And I would, I would kind of think whatever I got, I would be unhappy with it. I think you haven't really given this much thought, have you? You haven't really thought about me. You don't really see me. You haven't, I'm not, I didn't feel, I didn't feel seen during, I mean, that, I don't give a monkeys about that the rest of the year, but you know, on Christmas day, when I unwrapped the presents, which my relatives had very sweetly bought me, I felt unseen. Um, and, uh, and often I would say something like, uh, you know, something resentful, something a bit chippy about feeling unseen. And then I'd feel horribly guilty about seeming so ungrateful and ungracious. So I, it was always just a nightmare, but now that I'm giving, giving presents to my children, I find it a lot easier. Um, I find it easier to give than to receive Nick I have to address those points just briefly I um, I got I judged my presents so well this year everyone seemed happy with them and I made a good effort and I was like I've really smashed it this year and for and, and my presents were okay because I got money so I'm always happy with money but what my brother normally does I feel the same as you what he normally does is give me the same box of moisturizers that I never ever use ever they're like some L'Oreal you know some box of moisturizers from Boots never use them and then the other thing he gives me is a note saying he'll get me something that he then doesn't get and this, this has gone on for years and years. It's like, I'll help, I'll get that, you know, it's something for your house. But it's always some specific thing, but he never, ever gets it. And I'm like, I can't have any more notes. So I was just happy the notes had stopped. I got the money. I gave them good presents that were thoughtful. And uh, I, so I smashed it in that way. But I, my resentment came from just having to be at my brother's house and it was not being my world. And, I, and getting ill. My dad was coughing horrendously. And I feel bad for my dad and my mum was coughing, but I also feel like I've only got three days off and I have to work and I'm going to be getting paid double to work on New Year's Eve. So I was paranoid that I would get ill. The next day I had a splitting headache and I'm like, you've made me ill. And I said to my mum, I'm not going back to Plague House ever again. <laughs> and I started calling it Plague House. So yeah, so, well, I got some weird resentments as well about my family. I, I, you know, weird guilt mixed with resentment. Guilt that I can't do more for my mum and dad. And, you know, how can you ever do enough for your mum and dad? But then also just resentment that I have to be at my brother's house and you know I got into a bit of trouble because um my daughter suggested that we go to Westfield on Christmas Eve um to get my wife um some little gifts to put together in a stocking because we do stockings on Christmas morning and my wife goes to great lengths to get all the children a stocking, um, f- f- fills up the stockings with goodies. And she also does a, stock- a stocking for me, which is usually kind of nice kind of edibles, like, you know, um, uh, white almonds um, and chocolates of various kinds. So the idea was, look, isn't, isn't, wouldn't it be nice to, to do a stocking for mum? this year you know because she always does a stocking for you but you never do a stocking for her so I agreed that that was a nice idea but come Christmas Eve the the prospect of going to Westfield which was just going to be a complete zoo full of dads doing last minute shopping I just couldn't face it so in the end mum didn't get a stocking so my children have have let me know how they all feel about that. And I was like, you could have done it. I mean, <laughs> why is it all on me? <laughs> um, but that, yeah. And then we had a big row. Well, not exactly a row, but we had a, a bit of argy-bargy on Christmas Eve because we had a World Cup sweepstakes. And whoever picked the winning team could could choose the movie we all watched as well as the food we ate, the takeout we got on Christmas Eve. And my 14-year-old won, so he wanted to watch episode three of Star Wars, which he thinks is is uh, criminally underrated and he wants us all to enjoy it as much as him and he also wanted to he also ordered this uh, food from chicken kitchen admittedly that wasn't his first choice but it was the only one we could all agree on but um we ended up watching wakanda forever because i had that because i'm a member of bafta i don't know if i've mentioned that before and uh, so we and that went on for so long by the time and we tried to watch a bit of 
episode three of Star Wars, but it was so noisy and kind of hard to follow if you hadn't seen episodes one and two, or at least not recently. And anyway, it's terrible. Um, so uh, we then abandoned that and switched to Zoolander. And I think I fell asleep while we were watching Zoolander. So that was a bit of a washout. And I feel a bit sorry for my 14 year old who didn't really get, you know, his prop, didn't get to enjoy his prize. There are only three Star Wars movies, episode four, five, and six. Uh, that's my official position. So that was Christmas dealt with. But did you watch King Charles's speech, Toby? No, you I didn't. Said you didn't watch it, so I'm just going to have to tell you about it, which is nothing more entertaining than someone explaining the king's <laughs> speech to someone else. Basically, it was a lot of multicultural guff. It was, there was stuff about mosques in there. He praised our tireless emergency workers. I was thinking, not that tireless if they're striking, but he talked about the light of faith. And he also said, if you have no faith. So the problem is, he has to be so generic because of our the joys of multiculturalism that basically sort of said nothing, but it was notable that he left out Harry and Meghan. He mentioned William and Catherine, but he didn't mention Harry and people noticed that. And I just thought it'd be funnier if he just, he was doing the speech. If he said, it's been a difficult year for everyone, war in Europe, strikes, cost of living, and my twat of a sod on Netflix. (laughs) If it had said that, or he kept trying to do the speech and kept going, and that bitch Meghan, but uh, he didn't do that. But I thought that would have been pretty amazing. But he didn't mention him at all. Any thoughts? Wasn't there some footage of him in Bethlehem visiting the birthplace of Christ? Or was that was that not overlaid? That may well have been overlaid. I was not really watching. I was just listening. He, he at least mentioned Christ, didn't he? And the birth of Christ and the religious significance of Christmas, which is more than Joe Biden managed in his Christmas message. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, he yeah, definitely so- got some Christian stuff in there. Okay, yeah. So in Joe Biden's Christmas message, it was, I think, the first time ever that a president of the United States in a Christmas message hasn't mentioned Christ. Claims to be a Catholic, doesn't he? Absolute nonsense. Um, did, did you see Rishi and the, the trending homeless video? So th- this was massive on Twitter. Rishi met a, a homeless person who was at, was at one of these food bank type places and he got in a slightly awkward conversation with him. And I think he's been a bit unfairly treated. So he said to the, the guy, do you, the guy mentioned business. And then so Rishi said to him, do you work in a business? He didn't say in business. He said in a business, which he might have. He went, no, I'm homeless, which was fair enough. But then the homeless guy did say, when finance is doing well, we all do well in London. So he made this sort of quite sophisticated point about sort of trickle-down economics. And, <laughs> and Rishi goes, that's exactly right, and got onto his favorite topic of finance. And then he said to the guy, is that something you'd like to get into? And he and he goes, well, I'm just trying to get through Christmas, really. Which you know, and then Rishi said, what are your plans for this weekend? Which was also a bit toned. He's like, he's like, well, you know, trying to eat. But he didn't say that. But he's trying to get into so and so place. So it was tone deaf, and and it was obviously the absurd gulf between Rishi's life and financial services. You know, you're talking to the prime minister and also a notably rich one. So. It's always going to be awkward if you're a homeless person talking to the richest ever prime minister. But yes. given that, I thought he actually tried his best. And, it, you know, and, and the, the guy was making some reasonably sophisticated points. So, so what, what do you do? You meet him at face value and you, and you start talking about that. You don't say, well, you're homeless. How could you possibly understand financial services? So I thought people were being a bit harsh on Rishi. I'm, I very rarely defend this fake conservative government, but I will mm. today. Yeah, I suppose, you know, if it's kind of an, I mean, an awkward sort of PR stunt in the first place, isn't it? Not very well thought through because, you know, you can see why superficially it would appeal to one of Rishi's spin doctors to have him work in a soup kitchen over Christmas. Um, But the risk would be that he would then have a conversation which would be tone deaf with one of the 
client of the shelter, uh, which is what duly happened. What what would have been a kind of less risky kind of PR stunt that he could have engaged in some other form of kind of service, you know, to the less fortunate jury. He could have manned, because he could have like manned, a, could have called people up to try and raise money for a kind of charity. He could have joined, you know, the BBC's bank of people making calls to raise money for children in need or something. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, no, it sounds a bit awkward. Poor old Rishi. Um, yeah, he's, he's done a bit better this week on this, on this thing. You wanted to discuss the gender recognition reform bill. I say you wanted to, cause I've discussed it ad nauseum on, on headliners on GB. And basically this is, this is this thing where Scotland wants to reduce the age. You can change your gender to 16 from 18. And instead of a two year cooling off period as your acquired gender it'll only be three months followed by a three months reflection period so you'll be able to just sort of you know permanently alter your body much younger it's a pretty appalling bill and we and Rishi is thinking about rejecting this but then Theresa May has other views yeah well it's it's actually now um the law um in Scotland well the um the bill has has passed the Scottish Parliament um uh, and it's now awaiting royal assent. And even though gender recognition is a devolved area of legislation, equality law isn't. And because this law will 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 interact with the Equality Act, which was one of the last pieces of legislation passed by the Labour government in 2010, um, that means that it can be vetoed, in effect, by the government in Westminster. So Rishi could advise the Queen to withhold royal assent. I'm sorry, not the Queen, King Charles to withhold royal assent from this bill um, on the grounds that um, it intrudes into an area in which Westminster have kind of supremacy. So it's sort of, and I think the reason um, Rishi is thinking about picking a fight over this is because he wants to put Keir Starmer on the spot. He wants Labour to come out and unequivocally say, we support this reform to the Gender Recognition Act. We think this should also be the law in England um, uh, because he thinks that'll be a vote loser for the Labour Party. And in particular, um, it'll damage the Labour Party's support amongst women, where generally Labour enjoys quite a healthy lead um, uh, over the Conservatives, even bigger than the lead Labour enjoys amongst men. But yeah, I mean, I love the way it can't ever be just because it's wrong morally, this bill. But you're much smarter than me on the kind of uh, cynical side of politics, Toby. But the funny thing about that, though, we did a story the other day, Keir Starmer pro-trans laws are needed across the UK. So without prompting, Starmer already seems to have been diving headfirst into the pro-trans stance, which everyone thought was surprising. Yes, I think, um, I think, yeah, and I think that that, that's partly what's prompted Rishi Sunak and his team to think there's a political opportunity here. I think they want to force Keir Starmer to set out in detail how he proposes to reform the Gender Recognition Act um, and wants to go further than the Conservatives have proposed to do. Interestingly, I mean, the Conservatives initially proposed to do it more or less exactly uh, what's happened in Scotland under Theresa May. And Theresa May was quoted, I think, in today's paper, uh, saying that um, as far as she's concerned, what Scotland has done is right and England ought to follow in Scotland's footsteps. Um, uh, but her, her proposed reforms to the Gender Recognition Act um, uh, caused a lot of controversy and were ultimately rejected um, by uh, Liz Truss when she was the Equalities Minister. And now that um, Kemi Badenoch is the Equalities Minister, she, she wants to uh, reject these reforms too. And 
I think there's there's a strong case for rejecting them. I mean, the argument for rejecting them is that, um, uh, you know, um, if you make it easier for uh, biological males to um, define themselves as women and change their legal gender, then you make it easier for them to access women's spaces, compete against women in women's sports, be admitted to women's prisons and changing rooms and so forth. Um, And, you know, um, there is legitimate concern about the erosion of sex-based women's rights as a consequence. I find it so strange that Starmer's taken this stance because he's everything he's done has been towards getting back the red wall, you know, saying we, we shouldn't undo Brexit in any way. And he sort of says vaguely patriotic things here and there. And then he, recently there was this piece about him targeting middle-aged men, move over Mondeo man and Worcester woman. They're now targeting middle-aged men. And it actually sort of... You, it was a middle-aged like mortgage only. You start to think, okay, they're taking the Tory vote. When you read up more, it sounded more like the old Labour vote. It was a, it was described as a middle-aged man at about fifty with a university, without a university degree, sorry, but with a good job in the private sector, a homeowner with a mortgage, but someone who almost certainly voted Brexit. So it's a kind of more old Labour red wall person. But how can you then merge that with and where we want radical pro-trans laws? I think it's it must be because. Um he realises that this is a losing battle within the Labour Party. And however much it would make sense from an electoral point of view to oppose what's happened in Scotland, um, he just knows that he just doesn't want to face down his activists, doesn't want to open that battlefront with his activists. Um, I think there are just too many um, in the Labour Party who think this is the right thing to do and would kick up a lot of a big fuss if he if he resiles from it. Oh, I see. And he's already fought them on not being anti-Semitic. So it's it's too much to fight them on not <laughs> wanting children to have catastrophic gender surgery. That's right, Pick right. your battles when you're in the Labour Party. <laughs> yeah, wow. How grotesque. Well, speaking of grotesque things, did you see this story about silent prayer? This one wound me up. So Isabella Vaughan Spruce was arrested for praying on the street. Now, was she arrested for that or not? So this, this is the thing that I got a lot of nasty Twitter replies about this. So... It said in the paper, Miss Spruce was charged with breaching an exclusion zone and four counts of failing to comply with a public space protection order, according to West Midlands Police. So she was standing there on the pavement. A policeman came up to her and said, you know, what are you doing? You know, grilled her with a few questions and he even asked, are you praying? And she said, I might be in my head. And then he, then he announced he's going to arrest her. And this is to do with the abortion buffer zones. You're not allowed to be praying in your head now near an abortion center. And all my Twitter replies, a lot of them anyway, were very nasty. And they were saying, well, you're lying here because she's not been arrested for praying in her head, which was my claim, but she's been arrested for being uh, breaching the PSPO. And suddenly they're all like advocates of this public space protection order that's come in 10 minutes ago. And now they're all like, that's the law. I mean, which on its own is obscene and shows we've learned nothing from COVID because as Lord Sumption said, as a former Supreme Court judge, judge he said, we have a legal obligation to follow the law. That's a tautology, but we have no moral obligation to follow bad laws. So when this thing comes in, which is saying you can't even think near an abortion center, that's a bad law. But all these people in my replies are saying, no, it breaches this perfectly good law, which was made 10 seconds ago. But the other thing they were saying was, it's not for the prayer. And then I asked, well, why is the police officer asking then if she's praying? So the two things are true. So if you were praying in your house silently, that's still not quite illegal yet. That we'll, I'm sure we'll get there. Then again, if you were walking past the abortion centre, just walking by, you would not be arrested. So it's clearly the combination of praying next to the abortion centre. So the prayer is crucial. It's at least half the equation. And it's basically having pro-life intent anywhere near an abortion centre. And ultimately, ultimately, it is a free speech issue because you can now be arrested 
for thinking stuff, Toby. Yeah, it's definitely a free speech issue. I think you've, um, I think that what what this particular woman, the law she was accused of breaching was um, a local law, so made by what Birmingham City Council. So councils are currently able to impose these buffer zones um, outside abortion clinics, um, so people can't protest um, uh, uh, within a hundred and fifty meter or yard radius of an abortion clinic and there is a proposal um, to uh, make this a national law at the moment local authorities have the power to do this if they choose um, but the uh, why it's why it's such a hot button issue at the moment is because there is a proposal uh, in Westminster to make this law a national law and one of the arguments that um, Christians make against imposing this across the country is that local authorities already have the ability to do this and can enforce this law so why do we need a national law um, and um, and it seems like you know if the argument is that the powers of local authorities don't go far enough you know, uh, without this reform to the law, then that seems pretty extraordinary if they're able to arrest someone for engaging in silent prayer in one of these buffer zones. I mean, how much greater do you want their powers to be? Um, so uh, in a way, it's sort of, I mean, I think it, it, it helps the it helps the kind of Christian opponents of that new national law by making it clear that local authorities have all the powers they need to enforce these buffer zones at present. But it also helps them because it shows how absurd um, uh, the, you know, the lengths local authorities are prepared to go in order to kind of protect women who want to kind of be unmolested whilst um, entering these clinics. I mean, yeah, I, I It'll be interesting um, to see um, whether um, her arrest stands, whether she can be successfully fined for silently praying within a buffer zone. I mean, I would have thought that um, it'll be um, that you know that the le- she'll be able to successfully legally challenge the the fine and the arrest because it it can't. I can see how it can be illegal to be thinking certain thoughts in a buffer zone. I mean, if she was praying out loud, perhaps, but praying. Silently, I just it just it just beggars belief that well, that could I, legitimately be against the law. I think they already brought it in in Scotland. Um, the ADF are handling the case. My friend Lois works for them, and the claim from these people is always, you know, they're harassing people outside these centres. But it, in the, in most cases, it's they're trying to support them, or they're just praying like this. So, yeah, it's shocking. I, how can they win the case, as you say? But people are so pro. I mean, there's two points. There's one we're supposed to be a Christian country nominally, and two is the free speech point. But people get behind it because they're so pro-death or pro-choice, if you prefer, in in this country. It's it's an issue where people just go, oh, well, she's breaking the law. And people side with this bizarre, draconian, authoritarian measure, just like we're back in COVID. And look what the Daily Express wrote. They said the misinformed notion that she was detained simply for silently praying was spread on social media. So they're calling that misinformation on the Express. It's like, well, no, it, it's not misinformation. Why did the police officer ask her if she's praying? It is part of the law that you're not allowed mm. to now pray in these zones. But it, because people are so rabidly pro-abortion in this country and this draconian stuff will be slipped through. Yeah, no, I think um, people who who are passionate about defending women's right to abortion um, are capable of blind spots when it comes to certain issues. I mean, one, one obvious one was yeah, during the pandemic, a lot of people who were defending the right not to be vaccinated and 
um, uh, attacking vaccine mandates in various forms, uh, particularly no jab, no job, were saying, well, shouldn't shouldn't it be? You know, shouldn't someone have a right to choose? Shouldn't they have autonomy over what what's over their own bodies? Um, and uh, often women who were kind of fanatically opposed to the Supreme Court decision um, were also kind of fanatically pro-vaccine and pro-vaccine mandate. So that was a bit of uh, a bit of double standards there. But this one too, which is, you know, a lot of the people who opposed the limitations placed on the right to protest by the police crime sentencing and courts bill um, don't seem to be in any way inhibited or troubled about um, buffer zones outside abortion clinics. We're actually, I should, I should give a plug to, we're organising um, a free speech union in-person debate um, on January 31st about um, uh, buffer zones outside of abortion clinics. And because um, uh, it's actually, I think, I think it, uh, you know, even amongst people who are pro-free speech, there's, there's quite a lot of division about it. People aren't just unequivocally in favour of the right to protest within 150 yards of abortion clinics, even if they're quite pro-free speech. So it'll be an interesting debate. You're doing that on New Year's Eve? Sorry, no, we're doing it on December 31st. Oh, yeah, I was going no, to sorry, say, sorry, no, January, January 31st. Oh, yeah, January no, 31st. I misheard. And thought, so I was thinking that was, that's a bold move. You know, losers will be out <laughs> drinking. Some people will be debating buffer zones. Um, oh, sorry, yeah, January 31st. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, look, just on your other point, by the way, it was never a contradiction to be pro-life but anti-vaccine mandate because the pro-life people say, as I believe, it's a separate human life. But it is hypocritical to be the opposite. You can't be pro-vaccine mandate and then, and then pro choice can you it doesn't work the other way around because you're saying it's my body my choice anyway so that's that's that well i think i think the the the, the, funnily enough the the inverse argument was made by people who were um uh pro-choice but also pro-vaccine they would say the reason i'm pro-choice but um uh don't think that's that's a contradiction um with being pro-vaccine is that whether or not you get vaccinated is not a decision which only affects you. It also affects other people. Right. Not, not acknowledging that um, the there's another life involved when you decide to have an abortion. There's that. And there's also the fact that they were wrong about transmission that's anyway true. and the vaccine yep. impairing that. So that's where their argument falls down and they lose. But um, do you want to quickly do our advert here, Toby, before we go on to Birdwatch? Oh, and I just want to thank Thor at this moment, by the way. He gave me a nice uh, bottle of white wine and some olives. I don't normally eat olives. Uh, but I thought maybe I can give them. And this is a sophisticated thing to have at my house if anyone ever comes round. And uh, and I, although I also noticed they had traces of nuts, so I couldn't give them to my ex girlfriend. It would kill her instantly, unfortunately. But uh, but thanks to Thor for the present. And uh, now we have an advert from Thor. I think we do. It's the same one as last week. Um, uh, and he has advised me once again not to try and do a Scottish accent, which is probably <laughs> good good advice. <laughs> uh, so this is this is from Thor. Assumptions are the mother of all mess ups, aren't they? Imagine then being named Thor, a lifetime of disappointed ladies, assuming a hammer of Thor Chris Hemsworth type would appear. Time then to clear up a common assumption among sceptic listeners. Just like Elon Musk, I stand for absolute free speech, as demonstrated through my pro bono work for the Free Speech Union. You are an FSU member, aren't you? Despite my delight with the new model Musk rampaging across Twitter, I don't aim my services at billionaires. While oil operator companies pay me £1,600 a day for consulting rates for the benefit of AI and social media hall monitors, that's evil, very evil, big oil, I am available to coach you from as little as £1,000 for a whole year. 
And when you work with me, my input will be worth many multiples of your investment. If you'd like to check whether previous clients agree, read my client reviews and recommendations at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Thorholt, all one word. And fortunately, it appears that so far, at least, previous lovers don't write reviews. Once again, it's linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Thorholt. So Thor can coach me for a thousand pounds a year. What's, what can he cook? Can he just give me like general life advice or is it more specific? He could. He could no, I think he could, he could give you general life advice. I think he could probably give you some career advice. Um, help <laughs> what are you, you saying? Help you, help, help you uh, parlay that, um, that, 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 that fame you've acquired through your regular appearances on GB into, you know, big into bucks. Hard cash. Yeah. <laughs> hard cash. Okay, maybe I'll ask Thor about that. That sounds good. That's the first time I've actually properly listened to the advert and it sounds quite good. Um, all right. Well, that was Thor. Thank you very much, Thor. And now let's move on to everyone's new favorite section. It's Birdwatch. So a bumper Birdwatch this week, as it often is, actually, because there's so much happening on Twitter, which is why I've introduced the section. So firstly, Elon Musk said, I will resign as CEO as soon as I find someone foolish enough to take the job. After that, I'll just run the software and service teams. Gary Neville said Musk's Twitter is utterly confusing and is deteriorating as an experience. No possessive apostrophe on Musk, by the way, if you're wondering. And he complained that it was full of ads and messages and you don't want and following people and putting people in a timeline you don't want to see. Basically how Twitter's always been for everyone, but suddenly Gary's noticed it and just kind of basically just sided with the regime. As I put it, Gary preferred FBI interference riddled with nonces Twitter. Um, the Washington Post were particularly perturbed that they suddenly have to follow the same rules as everyone else. They said journalists who won't delete Musk's tweets remain locked out of Twitter. That's always been the case for everyone, that if you don't delete the offending tweet, you don't get back on. Most famously, perhaps with Jordan Peterson, when he dead-named that actor. Uh, there was a rumor about Parag, the old CEO, that that he was involved in child porn. That turned out to be satire. Uh, so that was an uh, interesting thing that happened. Musk also had a little video I thought was very interesting where he said, to be totally frank, almost every conspiracy theory that people had about Twitter turned out to be true. So far, they've all turned out to be true, if not more true than people thought, which was hilarious. But the main one, and I'm coming to it now, Toby, was the Twitter Files COVID edition released by David Zweig. And there were a few highlights to this. Notably, our mate Martin Kulldorff, I say our mate because we went to that event and he was speaking. He was actually, there's a few things I'll go over, but let's just start with this one. He was suspended, not suspended, he was, sorry, flagged with a message saying it was misleading that he said children don't really need the vaccine. And this this was flagged. It turned out a lot of this stuff was done through bots or it was done through contracted workers in the Philippines who had to kind of, who had to make decisions about censorship. And then it would go to a manual user higher up in the Twitter staff and they would go, yeah, cool, let's get rid of that. What did you think about all this? Yeah, no, it was, um, well, it was like confirmation of, um, uh, our wildest speculations about <laughs> the suppression of COVID dissent um, during the pandemic. Um, uh, and, you know, so I, I don't think you could describe it as shocking exactly because um, that, that would suggest a degree, or I, I think it would involve pretending to have had a degree of naivety that, you know, um, I don't think many of us on this side of the aisle did uh, at the height of the pandemic. But it was great, I think, to have, you know, confirmation um, that this was actually going on and that um, uh, any dissent from um, uh, the kind of narrative about the efficacy and safety of the mRNA vaccines 
um, was suppressed and suppressed at the behest of the authorities um, and and suppressed um, on the grounds that it was harmful. It was harmful misinformation, even if you know the tweets in question cited peer-reviewed studies, even if they were tweeted by eminent doctors and you know um, scientists. Um, uh, you know, I think Martin Kuldorf, who, as you say, um, did have some of his tweets suppressed, um, was at the time um, a professor of medicine at. Um, Harvard. Um, so, you know, couldn't really have been a kind of more credentialed, a better credentialed expert and wasn't saying anything particularly outrageous. Um, just pointing out that um, maybe if you, if you were, if you were, you know, a child um, taking one of the mRNA vaccines um, was more risky than not taking it. Um, I mean, it was it really, really quite kind of extraordinary, the lengths to which the authorities went to suppress any dissent from the prevailing narrative. And I I was thinking about this um, in the car driving to where I am at the moment. And I think it's really, I think it, it's not enough if we're going to stop this kind of, this kind of activity in future. It's not enough to just show that it took place. I mean, they were clearly embarrassed about the fact that it was taking place and, you know, respectable social media organizations involved in, you know, um, the uh, distribution of news and the publication of news really shouldn't be doing the bidding of, you know, the state when it comes to suppressing debate about what the state is up to. Um, uh, but I don't think it's enough. I know that's why, you know, they were, they were, they were quite mealy-mouthed and kind of closed-lipped about it at the time. Um, and even in some cases denied that it was happening when it was clearly happening. So a degree of embarrassment, but I think just exposing it won't be enough to stop it happening in future, uh, or, you know, it, it, if there's another pandemic or, you know, about climate change, for instance, in order to kind of stop it happening in future, I think it's, it, it's incumbent upon, you know, people in favor of free speech to show that the suppression of any debate about the efficacy and safety of the mRNA vaccines actually caused harm. If we can show that it actually caused harm, uh, if, if a consensus eventually emerges that actually um, giving mRNA vaccines to children um, was actually harmful um, and did more harm than good and resulted in some cases not just um, in myocarditis and other heart complaints and um, clotting problems and the rest of it, but actually cause death. If, if we can establish that beyond any doubt, um, then I think that would be a kind of mortal blow to those arguing that um, so-called misinformation um, about these you know, important public debates should be suppressed because the misinformation itself, just challenging the prevailing orthodoxy, causes harm. If we can show that the suppression itself caused harm, um, then in future, I think, you know, it'll be harder for social media platforms to just, you know, uh, do the bidding of uh, the public authorities um, uh, uh, about suppressing dissent from whatever their kind of policies are at the moment. Yeah. But of course, the problem is showing that harm itself is being suppressed. And we cover this, you know, Andrew Bridgen tried to get this stuff out about mm. the British Heart Foundation and and this whistleblower there saying that someone there is trying to suppress information. Dr. Dalgleish is trying to get his his information heard about aggressive cancers 
coming back due to the booster, but no one wants to hear it. So it's how do you even get the harms out? But I, I take your point. And just on the Kolderf thing, Martin Kolderf was only advocating what was policy at the time in many countries and was still flagged. And someone actually shared the official CDC data, and that was marked as misleading. And what, what happened is they got a lot of tattles. Apparently, they're called tattles when users yeah. tattletale on you, and then a human reviews it. But the human often upholds it because they basically side with the, the regime. So what was interesting was you'd expect probably the government were even more zealous about it than Twitter. Twitter were a little bit worried about free speech. They had anguished conversations about it before going with the censorship. And and they sort of wrestled with whether they could suppress a particular tweet or ban a particular user like Alex Berenson, the New York Times, former New York Times reporter, who was from quite a early point a vaccine skeptic and a covid skeptic he was he was banned entirely uh, seemingly at the behest of what the fbi anyway um uh but um uh berenson once the biden admin took over just on that there was already things about like panic buying for example which sound quite reasonable that you wanted to suppress panic buying it's not that's the relatively benign end of it and i'm not just saying it because that was during trump's time that, that happened during trump's time but once biden took over the focus ramped up on anti-vaxxers, particularly Alex Berenson. And then even when Twitter did a load of things, the Biden administration was, quote, very angry they didn't do more. Yeah. Now, I was going to say um, that that the the kind of three or four senior executives at Twitter who were making these decisions. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that when when when, when Musk was about to take over, people said, it's it's totally undemocratic to have just one guy controlling this really important platform, which has such a pivotal role in public debates across the world. Well, turns out three or four people uh, in Twitter 1.0 were controlling public debates. It was hardly kind of much more democratic than it is under Musk. Uh, but but at least there was an attempt to kind of um, rationalize, you know, banning people like Alex Berenson and suppressing tweets by people like Martin Kulldorff and sort of show how it was somehow compatible with their content moderation policies. They weren't just kind of arbitrarily doing it at the bidding of the FBI. They were trying to persuade themselves. They were engaging in these kind of torturous mental gymnastics to try and demonstrate to themselves, satisfy their consciences, that it was consistent with their overall content moderation strategy. Um, uh, so, you know, I guess that's that in some ways it's, you know, OK, they were weak about it. But I suppose it's encouraging that they weren't just kind of uh, I mean, I think the way the way kind of people who are conspiracy theorists imagined that, that these decisions were being made is they were just happily doing the bidding of the authorities when they were contacted because they are completely, you know, owned lock, stock and barrel by Klaus Schwab and his cabal of kind of evil billionaires. It wasn't quite like that. I mean, the FBI, it turned out, had to actually pay Twitter millions of dollars to get Twitter to kind of comply with its kind of constant request to suppress or ban you know, dissidents. So, you know, they, they, they weren't completely, in th- they weren't completely willing co-conspirators. They were unwilling co-conspirators, these three or four kind of decision makers at Twitter. Yeah, who ended up doing it all anyway. But yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> yes, a, but, your <laughs> typically optimistic Toby take. But um, well, did, go on. We can well, I would say, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it suggests that, you know, that there's something to work with there. You know, um, uh, they, they, they clearly felt a little bit uncomfortable about it. I mean, I, they're gone. But, you know, it, 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 I imagine the same levels of discomfort apply 
at other social media platforms where it's still going on. You know, I mean, that was an interesting point made by, uh, was it David Zweig um, in his latest kind of Twitter file story was that um, when, when, when the requests were being made to ban people like Alex Berenson, they were being made at round table events, or I imagine Zoom calls, in which it wasn't just, you know, a call between the FBI and Twitter, it was a call between the FBI, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. So they were all and sort of uh, Google, they were all on the call together. And so presumably all the information that has been revealed by the Twitter files is information that could equally well be revealed about Google and Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, and I imagine this, there's, there's a kind of degree of reluctance across the board at those social media platforms. So I think, you know, that, that okay, it's, it's bad that they ended up doing it. Um, but at least I suppose, you know, that, that we can take some crumb of comfort from the fact that they did it, they did it slightly reluctantly. I'm, I'm sure many low-level Nazis <laughs> felt terrifically uncomfortable as well while they were doing all that stuff. I mean, yeah, very scant comfort. You're right, there were, there were several big tech companies involved. We've yet to see anything from those. We can only imagine Google and Meta are much worse. They were involved, particularly at the early stage, when they were talking about this panic buying stuff, whether they could suppress that. Uh, one last one I wanted to add from this, though, Toby, my favorite, if you like, in a kind of bleak way, was Jim Baker, formerly of the FBI, then of Twitter. He flagged a tweet from Trump where Trump was saying, you know, I've had COVID, I feel better, blah, blah, blah. Don't be afraid. And he tweeted, he, he, he messaged the relevant people at Twitter and said, why is this not information? Particularly highlighting the don't be afraid bit. So not living in abject fear is now misinformation. Yeah, that was extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, an interesting thing. I think this, 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 this goes to my point. Um, <laughs> they, in the end, I don't think they did suppress that tweet. Um, that that was that they actually they actually held firm when it came. They, they resisted Jim Baker's um, uh, 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 pressure to suppress that tweet on the grounds that it didn't violate any of their policies and he didn't actually cross any of the kind of lines that people generally crossed if they, if they were going to be if they were going to be justifiably banned or suppressed. Yeah, yeah. As as uh, David's wife put it, Twitter, uh, Yoel Roth had to explain that optimism wasn't misinformation. <laughs> I mean, we know Roth to be a bit of a nutter, a bit of a woke nutter, but yeah, he's not quite as scary as the FBI. I mean, you'd expect the government and FBI to be more, you know, authoritarian even than than Twitter. But, but I think I think I think, I think it is an important point. I think mm-hmm. you know, people on our side, um, particularly the more conspiracy minded, imagine that organisations like Twitter are just completely captured by the regime to use your phrase um and and what, what one of the and and people i think take the twitter files as kind of copper bottomed confirmation of that but actually when you look when you drill down into the detail of what's been revealed it reveals that yes they did the bidding for the most part but not in every case but they weren't completely captured they were semi captured um, they were trying to justify it to themselves and trying to reconcile it with their overall policy positions and trying not to look as though they were being inconsistent for political reasons and trying to maintain, trying to justify almost to themselves that they were still being impartial, that they weren't just being kind of partisan actors and doing the bidding of kind of other partisan actors. They, they try, you know, they, And the fact that they weren't completely captured, they were only semi-captured, I think is, is a source of, of hope. It means that we can work <laughs> on them. We can play on yeah. their consciences. And that's why this is also humiliating for them. I mean, you know, it's um, uh, yeah, but they didn't want to seem as captured as 
the Twitter files make them appear to be because they know it's not great. You know, it's not a great look. It's kind of inconsistent with, you know, journalistic principles, with journalistic ethics. They don't want to look as though they don't want to, you know, acknowledge that they're just doing the bidding of these kind of powerful actors. They want to create the impression that they're people of conscience doing what they think is in the public interest. I can see you want your Christmas bit of hope, Toby. Uh, my, <laughs> what I see is, is that the FBI and the commie Biden government were trying to suppress free speech and turn America into China, that many of the lower level employees were desperately agitating for the removal of a, a president, which is Trump. You see all the, the lower level employees are saying we wanted this for three years. They're all desperate for it in their group thing. And a few people at the top are a little bit worried about it, Yoel Roth and Jack notably. But what happens is Jack just gets edged out or feels pressure to do it. As he recently admitted in a, in a recent piece he wrote, he basically capitulated and did it all anyway. And what I see is is deep state pressures co-conspiring with big tech, who reluctantly, as you say, slightly reluctantly, go along with it. And it's going to take someone of immense guts, a Musk or someone else, if he appoints a new CEO, to stop all this stuff. But yeah, I mean, look, to give Roll Roth the credit that you want to give him, he did reply to Jim Baker on that absurd one. Uh, Baker said, why isn't this POTUS tweet a violation of policy, especially the don't be afraid of COVID statement? And Roth wrote, hey, Jim, um, adding you to the main thread on the subject. In short, this tweet is a broad, optimistic statement. <laughs> it doesn't incite people to do something harmful, nor does it recommend against taking precautions or following mass directives or other guidelines. It doesn't fall within the published scope of our policies. Curious whether you have a different read on it, though, and then he can probably just come back with it. Yeah, I think everyone should be cancelled. I don't like. But yeah, I mean, OK, so Toby's going with the, the slight reluctance of your wrath is the source of our hope for the new well, year. Well, I think I think I think it, what it suggests is that the people who um, uh, suppressed debate about the lockdowns and the efficacy and safety of the covid vaccines, they still have there is there is a sufficient slender but sufficient thread of humanity and um, morality uh, 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 running through them that that you could shame them into being less compliant in future and actually upholding journalistic principles in future, uh, should they gain power again. All right, fair enough. Okay, so I suggested doing a good and bad of the year segment. And I said to Toby, we should do our best thing that's happened in a public sense and in a personal sense and the worst of both of those as well. And Toby said before he was struggling because he couldn't think of a good thing that had happened on a personal level (laughs) all year, which I find very hard to believe from such an optimist and someone so successful. But so what I went with, and and Toby's suggesting, uh, let's start with bad. So let's start with the worst thing of the year. To me was the census findings, which basically found that, as I put it in my brilliant Substack article, you can read it, nickdixon.substack.com, England is lost forever. We found that you know, white rich people were a minority in our, in our major cities, uh, in our capital, it was 36%. And we find that Christianity became a minority. And I've explained in my article why this is a, a problem that we've really just lost the country. And, you'll see, and we've lost our English culture. So that was probably a low for me on a, a public level. I think the low for me on a private level was just that even though my career is going much better, I'm still just miserable and angry the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> because I follow so much dark stuff from the culture and I get a lot of online abuse as well, as one does. And I think it sometimes it just brings me down following all this stuff and I need to somehow learn to be more grateful next year and, and not hate everything all the time yeah, somehow. I, 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 often, <laughs> I often say to James Dellingpole that um, believing the worst 
of um, politicians, billionaires, uh, vaccine scientists, um, you know, thinking that they're all engaged in this malevolent conspiracy um, uh, must be quite depressing. And also when, when, you know, when we talked about 2023 in our last podcast, he says, oh, my God, you thought things were bad in 2022. Things are just going to get so much worse in 2023. And, you know, if you're invested in thinking that, you know, we have that there is this kind of um, conspiracy um, uh, unfolding in almost in plain sight um, to destroy democracy, to enslave us all, to introduce a Chinese-style social credit system across the West and to decimate our populations via the, as he called it, the death jab and the rest of it. Um, that's pretty depressing. I mean, it's not surprising that uh, he's not a particularly happy bunny. And I sometimes fear the same is true of you. It's almost as though you're looking for confirmation of your own pessimism and your own kind of miserableness uh, by seeing all these kind of terrible plots and conspiracies unfolding in the world. Yes, well, it certainly is depressing. And many of the young men at Lotus Eaters feel the same when I speak to them, the idea that our country has lost. A lot of people feel like this. And as I've said to you, loads of people feel like it. Even quite people you know who you might think are quite optimistic have given me quite bleak predictions that are even worse than mine. So I think there is, that's the public side. There is an argument, which I might try next year, to enjoy the collapse. The Western world is collapsing. So how can I just kind of, instead of just ha- hating it, can I just sort of somehow revel in the, in the like the Joker or something, just reveling in the chaos? Maybe yeah, I'll try I, that. I, I, I remember seeing a T-shirt, which I thought was quite funny. I think I saw it in California when, uh, when I was on a trip there with my parents, age about 15. And it was a T-shirt of a man relaxing by a fire um, with a tumbler of whiskey. And the, the caption was friends of the hearth, because the less we do, the sooner it'll all be over. And that, that was very much what you've just described. It was like, if you really think the world is doomed and we're on our way to hell in a handcart, just enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride. You know, yeah. There's nothing you can do to stop it. That, that seems to be one of the kind of running themes when I talk to James. It's like, it, it's hopelessly naive of me to think that anything can be done to kind of um, uh, rectify some of the kind of awful things about the world and Britain in particular. So this kind of fatalistic kind of let's just let's we might let's just throw our hands up in despair. I think he has a kind of there's a sort of religious vision underpinning this that kind of somehow divine intervention will take but there's certainly nothing we can do. Um uh, but uh, so if you if you really do believe that, if you think it's absolutely hopeless and you're feeling quite fatalistic and pessimistic then just relax and well, yeah. uh, enjoy our descent. At least that's rational, though. I mean, the one that worries me more, and this is probably more for a therapist than this podcast, is just things going well in my career, and yet it never makes me happier, and I actually feel more despair, and I go more angry, and I go, what's wrong with you, Nick? And people have to tell me, Nick, you've done all these things. And it would have made sense if we'd have done the pros first. I was going to now just sound <laughs> weird, but I just think, yeah, why? what's wrong with me? So maybe it's about gratitude. The Christian vision of life is suffering, but then the sort of pragmatic attitude is is try and be as happy as you can. So I'm I'm torn, Toby. I'm very torn. I might, maybe I'll try and be more like you next year. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. What? Why, why? I mean, maybe you were just mistaken in imagining, you know, ten years ago that not being more successful was the cause of your um, melancholy, um, and that once you became successful then that would be the cure. I think it's quite, it's quite a common experience. I think lots of people think that if they're more successful, they'll be much happier or if they're richer, they'll be happier. And when they become 
rich and successful, they're no happier. And that's a pretty common thing. I mean, that's the illusion that you, your career is not going to fix it. It's about some sort of balance or gratitude or something. Famously, money or success, not like I've got much money or that much success, but famously, <laughs> these don't actually make you happier, do they? No, um, I don't think they generally do. Um, do, you, do, you, do you suffer to, a, to an extent from imposter syndrome too? Do you think uh, when you when you do enjoy some success that it's undeserved um, uh, and that actually deserve to be miserable and therefore success makes you uncomfortable because it sits at odds with your kind of self-understanding? I don't think it's imposter syndrome. I just think sometimes I do a good episode of Headliners or something and then one person says one bad thing or, or I just inexplicably go home feeling hor- horrendous even though it's been good. So I think I'm just... I'm just mentally ill, Toby. <laughs> no, isn't, 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 haven't you just got the kind of typical comedian's psychology? Yes. Um, yeah, I am negative that, emotion. Yeah. That's what Peterson calls it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I okay. It's, well, just, it's what makes you so funny. That's that's me dealt with. Um, that's so, why John Cleese, John, when John, that was why it was a mistake for, to, for John Cleese to have therapy, right? He, oh, did he, he have therapy? He, 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 he married a therapist. Yeah, he then he, then, <laughs> he went he, all he, in. He, he became a kind of evangelist for therapy for a bit, um, but it did. I think it robbed him of his kind of cutting edge as a kind of funny man. Um, better to kind of not mess with that stuff. That's the kind of engine of your comedy, and uh, yeah, happiness writes white. Oh, I say, just carry on being miserable and funny. That's my prescription from <laughs> Doctor Young. Um, so, do you have then, Toby, a, a personal or public low of the year? Yeah. Well. I did. Uh, I, I did. I tell you last week. I can't remember that I told you. I told James Dellingpole, but um, I um, I've been organising or helping to organise a Christmas lunch each year with my five oldest friends, and um, uh, one of them died um, last year, very unexpectedly, from a massive stroke, um, aged fifty four, um, uh, and uh, so that was a shock. Uh, but then another of them, um, uh, and, and these are people I've been having lunch with every year at Christmas, uh, without fail for 35 years or more. And another of them, um, I fell out with, um, over the course of the year. Um, and, and it, it sort of, it had been, it had been bubbling away. We, we, we certainly disagreed about Brexit. So he was, you know, a fanatical remainer. Um, but we managed to disagree and um, remain friends, partly because Richard, the guy who died, uh, always played the peacemaker at these. We would argue a lot, you know, it became quite heated over, yes, the wine flowed over Christmas lunch, but we would always make it up, make up by the end of the lunch, um, thanks in part to kind of Richard. Um, but then Richard died and then that, 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 but, but, but it wasn't over Brexit we fell out. It was over the lockdowns. He became convinced that um, lockdown skeptics was being funded by kind of dark Russian money. Um, wow. And that I was, you know, um, I was, I was a sort of useful idiot of Vladimir Putin's. Um, and, uh, and he's sort of, you know, he, he's a guardian reader and likes Carol Codwallader and is prone to kind of what I'd call left-wing conspiracy theories. I'm sure he would call them something else. Um, but so he, he was, he, he, he thought that um, there was no kind of rational basis for lockdown skepticism. Uh, anyone who challenged, you know, uh, the wisdom of that policy um, was being manipulated um, uh, by people who, who, who didn't have our best interests at heart. And he thought I was, I was a sort of a dupe of, of these kind of bad actors. 
engaged wow. in that manipulation. And 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 so we, we but we fell out over that. And um, and he didn't come to the Christmas lunch this year. So this year it was only four of us, um, which which made it kind of you know it used to we used to kind of we used to kind of you know laugh with each other um about our misfortunes um and it was kind of and it was nice to keep that kind of it was like a record of our of our lives and it was almost like being being in a play um but it was a play you know written by alan akeborn um it was fairly good humored and we consoled one another and always managed to kind of laugh however kind of misery we, we also did highs and lows of the year and however low the lows were we always managed to kind of you know laugh in the face of misfortune um but um this year that was much more difficult because there were only four of us and one of us had actually died um and that isn't a misfortune you can laugh off um uh, so that that was, I guess, I guess, I mean, the lunch, the, the, the dinner itself, it was a dinner this year, not a lunch, was was, was, yeah, it was perfectly pleasant. Um, but the kind of build up to it and thinking about it and contrasting it with previous years, that was a bit, that was a, that was a low point, I suppose. Yeah, I saw you just before that dinner and I, I felt really sorry that your friend had died. But, but also on the Russia point, yeah, just to briefly relate to you, the only time my brother has ever messaged me about GB News, has never watched it, couldn't name any of the shows I'm on, was to say, I've heard you're funded by Russian money. <laughs> that was the only time he found it in his heart to text me about GB uh, when the all, and that was when the Russia war kicked off. So the implication is that maybe GB will be shut down, maybe you'll lose your job. So yeah, I, and and to relate to your other point, not that it's on the same level. No one's died here, but the the point about falling out with your friend, my friend, uh, former friend, guy I'd known for ten years, I'd lived with him for a bit, even said um, when he found out I was anti-mask, he said that I wish you months of suffering. <laughs> And he was basically wishing that I would get COVID, and uh, we didn't. Friendship didn't last much longer after that. So I think many, and, I, and, and I've had friends who've really had trouble with their marriages and so on. I think many people have struggled with that mm. divide, haven't they? Yes, um, yeah, and I think in some ways, divisive though the Brexit referendum was, um, lockdown and the mRNA vaccines has been more divisive. So I think more people have fallen out, more marriages have broken up um, in the past two and a half years over that issue. Um, than they did over Brexit. For, yeah, I think it's partly because um, there's something much more personal about um, uh, uh, your attitude to the pandemic and the vaccines. You know, if, if, if someone, I mean, like, just as you would have argued with your brother if he'd brought up the fact that you thought it was a mistake for him to vaccinate his children, yeah, because it involves your children and your family and your personal behaviour, masking too, you know, people thought if you weren't wearing a mask, you know, in their presence, you were endangering them. So it all became much more personal and fraught and inflammatory than the Brexit debate, which was much more abstract. That's true. That's true. But even very normal, nice people like my friend who, I won't say who it is, but he's, a, he's the most upbeat person. He's probably the happiest person I know and the most well-adjusted, nothing like me. And uh, even he has fallen out with all his friends because they all live in North London. So he's fallen out with them on Brexit, on COVID, on just about everything. For some reason, he agrees more with me and he's just sort of cursed to fall out with them. But he's Because he's easier going than me, he's still managing to hold it together. But yeah, everyone's struggling with that. It's interesting. Um, why don't we do the good ones then? So do you have a, a, a personal or public good? Um, well, I was going to do, um, I was do um, a public good, which was um, uh, I, I was, I was very happy when um, PayPal, having initially closed my personal account, the account of the Daily Skeptic and the account of the Free Speech Union, after I sort of, I mean, I initially tried to 
complain and appeal the decision to PayPal. And it was absolutely impossible. I mean, you're dealing with a kind of fast, faceless bureaucracy, and it's impossible to get any traction, um, uh, you know, with customer service. Um, uh, But so I kind of, you know, went very public with it and kind of um, waged a campaign against PayPal and um, along with them for us, no, us for them managed to um, get 42 peers and MPs to write a letter, sign a letter to Jacob Rees-Mogg saying you've got to hold PayPal to account for closing us for them's account and my accounts. And um, anyway, so PayPal then backed down, changed their minds and um, decided to restore all three of my accounts. Um, And that doesn't mean I'm going to start using PayPal again. And I think, you know, there's still work to be done. Uh, We've got to stop PayPal doing this to other people and restore all the accounts they've closed, which still remain closed. Um, But nonetheless, that that was, it was great to win that victory against, uh, you know, over a kind of multi-billion dollar corporation. Um, I think you you called me the PayPal slayer at the time. (laughs) But um, that was, uh, I I guess it felt like because I I was, uh, because I was cancelled in at the beginning of 2018 and had to step down from five positions and felt like a bit of a kind of pariah after that. Um, it felt almost like kind of uh, I was being uncancelled, um, PayPal restoring my accounts and, and backing down in the face of, you know, media pressure, political pressure, and being able to kind of generate that media and political support. Um, that, that felt like being uncancelled. So it was a way of kind of finally slaying the demon that had been on my back since the beginning of 2018. That's a good one. How could I forget your victory against PayPal? We talked about it a lot. That's a, that's a really good one. Uh, do you want to do a personal one or did you not have any? Um, well, um, you're, not uh, as, you're not as open as me. I'm sort of like one of my USPs yeah. is just being absurdly honest. I got a lot of pleasure from, uh, I guess I'm a QPR supporter, as you know, and um, we did appoint seemingly this 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 very good uh, manager called Mickey Beale, uh, Michael Beale, um, at the beginning of this season. And um, he brought in, even though we have no budget, he managed to bring in some decent players, either on freeze or get them on loans. And um, uh, and uh, and, we, and we did actually, at one stage, we were actually top of the league. And probably the absolute high point was um, when we played Cardiff at home. Um, and there was a big question mark about whether he was going to leave the club because Wolves had made him an offer, supposedly. Um, and uh, and everyone thought he was going to leave because they were a Premier League club. Um, but in the end, he decided to stick with QPR and it was partly our emphatic victory over Cardiff City at Loftus Road that persuaded him. It was like a 3-0 victory, persuaded him to stay. Um, and uh, and that was I felt suddenly elated you know, this this manager, and that we were top of the league when we beat Cardiff. We went top of the league. We'd done very well. We had this really promising new manager, and it felt finally, you know, um, uh, our years, the years of misery of being a QPR supporter was suddenly going to be put behind me. We were going to get promoted at the end of the season. We were going to stay in the Premier League, and it was going to be a different future for QPR. And then, of course, it all went pear-shaped. He managed to get one point from five games. Um, and then when 
Rangers came knocking at the door. He immediately left and joined Rangers, even though he'd gone on about loyalty and integrity being important to him when he turned down the Wolves' offer. So it all kind of it all degenerated into a kind of typical QPR kind of misery festival um, in the end. But for a, for a while there, when we beat Cardiff, <laughs> Michael Beale said he'd stay. We were top of the league. That was probably my personal high of the year. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe your personal high is your football team doing well for a bit. That then goes wrong anyway. And it's already <laughs> not really a personal thing. It's, it's a football team. That's the most blokish answer anyway. And then it goes wrong anyway. That's the best you can do. I'm worried about you, Toby. It's so weird because ostensibly I'm the miserable one. And yet you can't even find one high from the year. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. All right. Well, if that's what it is, that's what it is. What can I say? May as well offer my own. Of course, my own public top highlight of the year was, of course, Musk buying Twitter, which is a huge blow for free speech, it's a huge win for us all. Hopefully it works out. That's the one that sprung out to me immediately. And of course, on a personal level, well, actually getting a full-time contract with GB News, starting the Weekly Skeptic podcast with Toby and appearing on the Lotus Eaters podcast several times and being a regular guest and starting my Substack. And I realized that's everything. What was I doing before? I was like, <laughs> I couldn't think, like, what was I doing last year? And of course, there's a public element because you could say the success of GB News against the many haters. But I had to say that those are personal, but the real one, of course, is meeting the top G, Andrew Tate. And <laughs> speaking about being uncancelled, I had a chat with him about how he was the first man to be truly uncancelled. But of course, he wasn't thinking about your PayPal victory <laughs> at the time. So maybe you can join that club as well. So that's an obvious personal high. So yeah. there you go, Toby. I mean, if you'd have met top G, you'd have had one. Yeah, I, I definitely would have. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, we just about got through the good and bad. Toby's so English, he struggled to find anything good and anything personal. (laughs) But let's move on to more comfortable territory with everyone's safer territory now with everyone's favorite segment, Peak Woke. So... Oh, I did woke. a sting myself there. That was pretty a mistake. I'll leave Jason to do his good work. But yeah, Peak Woke. So I've got a few. I may as well go in with them. First one was an Asian girl who was on that's that's not the whole thing. She was on a inevitably on libs of TikTok, and there was this video where every time she said white, she sounded like she was spitting. She went white like that, like white, like it was kind of disgusting, as if she was spitting on all white people. And she talked about white entitlement, white privileges, white microaggressions, and our white supremacist society, and how most white people are not actively fighting racism, ironically, while being incredibly racist in the video. And she said that some BIPOC folks enjoy a safe haven where whiteness is not is not centered. So she was basically saying she you've got to allow your BIPOC friends to be separate from white people and, and get away from them because of their microaggressions. And this was because she was anti-racist. That was one. The New York Post had a piece, Marines told to stop using sir and ma'am to avoid misgendering superiors. So what we're going to have here is a situation where you have a drill sergeant saying, Drop and give me 20, you maggot. And then the person goes, yes, they, them. Like, you can't say sir <laughs> to your, your marine drill instructor anymore. That was pretty good. But the best one has to be this story we covered on headliners. I'm sure many of you have seen it, which was fury as church changes lyrics of God rest ye merry gentlemen to be more inclusive. So this was All Saints with Holy Trinity in Loughborough, Leicestershire, who took the classic lyrics to the hymn, which was, is it a hymn or a carol? It's a carol. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Saviour was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Those are the classic lyrics, but they added a new verse 
God rest you also women who by men have been erased through history ignored and scorned, defiled and displaced. Bit of an awkward rhyme. And a third verse that went, God rest you queer and questioning, your anxious hearts be still. So they destroyed this carol in a kind of disgusting woke way. Reverend Matthew Firth said it was a woke on biblical agenda. Sam Margrave, member of Church's General Synod, absolutely disgusted an act of worship to our Lord and Saviour is being used to push political ideology contrary to Church of England teaching. Well, if it really is contrary to Church of England teaching, we don't know anymore because it seems the whole church has gone so woke. So that has got to be peak woke this week. What do you yeah, think? I was, yeah, I, I was thinking that the kind of um, logic involved in deciding to include that new verse in God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, um, the idea presumably is to make the church more inclusive and to make the church appeal to you know lgbtq people and women who feel erased and the rest of it but they're not they're not in the church are they you know so so all you're doing by including the extra verse is alienating the kind of poor long-suffering christmas worshipers who actually show up um you're not actually i mean you, you can sort of see why they'd want to kind of try and somehow make the you can sort of semi understand what they'd want they'd think that this would make the church more relevant and broaden its appeal and make it more inclusive but but it's not actually going to put more bums on seats in the pews is it it's just going to annoy the people who are actually sitting there at the time well my sad counter to that would be that actually those people are in the church increasingly in the church of england pretty much everyone you speak to seems to be some sort of woke person. So yes, it alienates the original, the hardcore of the church. They've probably gone off to like Latin mass or something, but yeah, but it, it certainly alienates, well, it alienates me and many others, but yes, it, it, perhaps it brings it. That's what it, the Church of England is now, isn't it? It's a woke organization. I've got to decide what church to go to next year. You, you can write in with your suggestions. But... Hasn't Calvin Robinson joined some breakaway Anglican Yeah, he's got sect. some high Anglican thing, hasn't he? Maybe yeah. I should ask Calvin. Yeah. So um, I've got, well, I'll, 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 I was going to, I saw Avatar um, in the run up to Christmas. So one of our annual Christmas traditions is we go to the Woolsey as a family and we have kind of um, a meal at the Woolsey and then we go to a movie afterwards. And this year we went and saw Avatar and I have to say Avatar was, it's pretty woke. Um, So, you know, the Navi are clearly supposed to um, represent Native Americans and, the first film and the second film are supposed to be, you know, metaphors for the colonial conquest of North and South America. Um, and, um, and, you know, and, uh, the portrayal of capitalism and, you know, development and the military is all kind of through a very woke lens. Um, but interestingly, Avatar 2 has attracted quite a lot of criticism from the ultra woke for being insufficiently woke so there was this um native american activist who said uh, she, she 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 tweeted do not watch avatar the way of water join natives and other indigenous groups around the world in boycotting this horrible and racist film our cultures were appropriated in a harmful manner to satisfy some white man savior complex no more blue face <laughs> Um, so Blueface, that was uh, that was a first. I hadn't heard that before. And that wasn't parody um, Blueface, was it? I couldn't believe that. that no, that was that's real. serious. Yeah. Um, so that that was one of my peak works, but I don't think it's my peak as well. What's your second one? Oh, that's that's all. That's all I've got. I had my Asian girl in the running, and I had my 
my New York Post, but my God, yes, rest ye merry gentlemen is, is the one I'm going with. Okay. All right. So um, I think the one I'm going to go with is um, the Royal Free NHS Foundation Trust um, issued an instruction to interview panels that if they hired um, uh, a white person, a white applicant for a job, they had to provide a kind of detailed written rationale for doing so for not hiring a person of color if a person of color also applied for the same job of course if they hire the person of color and not the white person they don't have to provide any kind of explanation at all but this is i suppose to promote kind of diversity and inclusion within the trust they actually they have to go through this kind of elaborate kind of bureaucratic exercise if they're if they're unwoke enough to hire a white applicant for a job in the trust that one was so shocking I've actually I've looked at it. I didn't read it in detail because I didn't want to get too annoyed, but I did look at it. And this idea you've got to write a sort of apology letter for or justify why you hired a white person. I mean, that is so extraordinarily racist and disgusting. That is pretty Pete woke. It's between that and, and my him or my Carol. What do you think? I mean, the Carol's pretty bad, but your one is much more serious. It's like it's, it's not even really Pete woke. It's like a sort of serious, terrible thing happening in our society. It's systemic racism. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 classic reverse racism, isn't it? And um, I don't I even that's... say reverse anymore, Toby. I mean, okay. white boys struggling in schools, white British people becoming a minority in, in, in several major cities. Why should we even say reverse? It's just pure old racism, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, so I, think, who I wins? think I win. I think I you win. think you win? Okay, yeah, maybe you win. In which case, I get weak poke. I, I was thinking about sharing it for Christmas, but no, let's let, let's Toby have this win because he didn't have any personal highs in the year. So he can have weak woke and I get weak poke. That's most of our show, guys. A bit of a different one because it was Christmas. Hopefully we covered everything though. Uh, we said thanks to Thor, our sponsor, who we thank. Uh, and we should thank, we, uh, we, we, we weren't able to get Will in this right. time because... Um, He's 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 uh, he's taking the Christmas break more seriously than us, and is having a week off. Yeah, yeah. Judge, judge that how you will, listeners. But uh, <laughs> Will's not here, so we can shame Will, and we say thanks to Will for his all his great work during the year, both as editor of the Daily Skeptic and on this podcast. And is there anything else you want to add, Toby? You normally like to add some sort of plug or something. Um, no, um, uh, I don't think so. I'm 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 because Will's on a break. I'm doing. The Daily Skeptic this week. Um, so if you've got any good story ideas, email me at thedailyskeptic at gmail.com. Seen any good stories you think we should um, flag up on the Daily Skeptic, do let me know. Um, and of course, we've, we've got a we've got a Christmas appeal, Christmas and New Year appeal for donations. So um, if you have any money left over in the un- unlikely event that there's anything left in your annual budget, please think about donating to the Daily Skeptic. And if there's any more money left in your budget, go to nickdixon.substack.com. Subscribe to my Substack. That would be a great Christmas present. £5 a month, £50 for a year, or free. But the best one is the paid one because, you know, it's Christmas and, and I get a little bit of money. Um, but thank you for all your support. Thanks for listening. And I'm, all I'm going to say is Happy New Year and stay sceptical. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.